tonight uh, as they're passing those out. Charles Solomon, by the way, uh, the study we're going to do over the next eight weeks is basically this book, so it's worth getting. How many of you already have a copy of that, this book? Okay, Tina has that. Many copies, three copies for sale? Okay, that's one of them, right? Okay, still a five. So Jane has five copies for sale. Uh, so whoever, ge- whoever gives the highest price after the service gets to buy one of them, right? <laughs> uh, okay, but Charles Solomon um, <clears throat> struggled greatly himself. He was a believer. Uh, he was working for the Lord. He was an engineer. He was doing all kinds of things, and yet he struggled. And let me just read you something from the book. It's interesting about his life, right? Um, <clears throat> Depression and anxiety reached their peak in October 1965, when I was 35. At times, I wept all the way home from work. I felt boxed in with no escape. I would hold on to this or that promise from God, hoping that I might find an answer to my plight. On the night of October 25th, I knew that I could not go one more day. I was on medication for pain in the back of my head. I had, uh, had I not been a Christian, suicide would have been the only option. It was at this point that the Spirit of God intervened in my life. Late that night, I was reading Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. I had given up hope of finding help from God or anyone else. But God graciously and sovereignly moved in my life that night and released me from all the anxiety, depression, pain in the back of my head, and the inferiority feelings of a lifetime. And what happened, uh, he has ups and downs after that, obviously, but what happened is... Uh, basically the truth that we're going to look at tonight. Uh, the truths that changed his life, that revolutionized his life. Now, <clears throat> here's what I want us to do, right? You're going to find as we go through this course that there are things God deals with you to help you with. Uh, rejection is one of the keynotes uh, of his teaching. And, you know, we pick up rejection all along the way. He talks about one young girl who for the first three months of her life was in an incubator and uh, had no contact with her parents. And you say, well, what's that got to do with rejection later in life? Uh, well, she was still experiencing it much later in life, and this truth uh, released her it from her, released her from it. And and let me say this: it's not just this is not just another truth. It's not just another thing to help you. Right? This is the thing. This is the cross applied to daily life to help you with the issues and difficulty that life in in a fallen world invariably spins off. And here's the thing. If you can be helped with it, you can help somebody else with it too. Right? So we're we're going to get help ourselves, and then we're going to look to the Lord to use us to help other people with this. And the the little wheel diagram, by this time you've all had a copy of it, the little wheel uh, and line drawing, I mean, that's a tremendous tool for helping people uh, to actually put things right in in their lives and change their perspective uh, on how things are, right? Now, having said all that, you've got the notes for the first lecture tonight. We're going to watch two tonight, right? The one is just a short one, the first one. It's an introduction. I want you to catch this because there's some definitions that he clarifies here that are important to you. Because, you know, if you get the definitions wrong, you're going to have a struggle with the course. You know, if you don't learn your multiplication tables, you're going to have a hard time doing calculus. And um, he wants to give you the definitions and help you to understand them. So in this first little uh, little intro, um, 
Do pay, take heed right down if you need to some of the definitions. You don't have the whole booklet uh, there in front of you, right? Uh, you don't have the whole booklet primarily because I don't trust you. All right? You'd forget them and you wouldn't bring them back and we'd have to print them off every week. All right? Uh, now, if you do want the whole booklet, ask Tina and she will email it to you. Right? Now, it's in a PDF format, which means you can't actually write, you can't write into it, but you have all the reading there uh, in the booklet. Uh, if, you, if you ask Tina, she'll, she'll actually send it to you. All right? And um, we're going to start. Tonight, we have about 40 minutes. Normally, we'll have 25 to 30 minutes uh, of lecture. Tony, I just want these lights off because everybody needs to be able to write in notes. Just, you know, just, we're just going to turn off the, 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 the front, front lights, right? Uh, because everybody needs to be able to, to write in the notes. Do you have a pen? You will need a pen to write in the notes. How many of you need a pen? Yeah, jawbring pens? Now, let me say something to you again uh, about this. You have a sheaf of notes, more notes than we normally give out to you on a Wednesday night, right? If you don't actually put them in a folder of some kind, they'll be gone by next week, right? Now, we're going to get through all of, the, all of those notes tonight, but <clears throat> you, you want to be able to keep these things and relate back and forth to them. Uh, so, so get yourself a folder, put them in the folder, and then as we give you the notes each week, uh, you'll be able to keep them and hold on to them, all right? <clears throat> okay. All right, then we're going to have a word of prayer, and then we're going to go into the first one. And without, Tina, without even uh, any pause, we'll just go straight into the first lesson, then after that, after that intro is done, right? But let's have a word of prayer first, all right? Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Thank you that you are indeed a great God uh, with great power to change lives and to touch lives. Lord, we know you're the answer. Lord, you're the answer for us, and you're the answer for a lost world. Lord, we, we do ask that you would help us tonight as we look to, to these truths, Lord, to lay hold upon the principle, Lord, that, uh, that can help and change us and heal the pain and the hurt in our lives too. Lord, we love you. Thank you for all your blessings. Bless now tonight, we plead in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> the resources that can make this study a more fruitful learning experience for you and those that you're discipling. One of the things that we would like to mention to you is that there is a leader's guide, and this resource is written by Pastor Jeff Barbieri. In this leader gu leader's guide, it has several points that will be useful for you as you facilitate this course. One thing is that he starts for each lesson with a share question, kind of an icebreaker, and if you would open with this question, you invite people to participate. It helps them relax and builds a sense of community as the lesson proceeds. Also, Jeff has a particular lesson aim for each of the eight chapters. You've heard the expression that if you don't have a target that you're aiming at, then you won't hit it. And so uh, the lesson aim helps you in the back of your mind pray for a particular uh, focus and emphasis of the lesson. So keep in mind that these each lesson has its own particular teaching aim, as Jeff outlines. 
Also, he mentions points of interest. He lifts out some key points that you may want to accentuate as you review after the DVD. There's also a summary, uh, and after 30 minutes or so of the video teaching, as you review that summary, it might help you just kind of give the essence of what the lesson covered. There's also some particular um, life application points that are there because we don't want to be just uh, hearers of the word, but rather we need to be doers to respond in a practical way. And finally, the study guide has suggestions for worship. In other words, there are ideas for prayer, for music, for uh, responses to the Lord that also are an option for your home Bible study, your Sunday school class, or whatever context in which you may be facilitating and leading for me to live as Christ. Let me mention a couple of other points uh, as you prepare to go through this series. We trust that you will um, read through the workbook. Uh, notice that in the leader's guide there's also an answer key where I've uh, put down um, answers for the various fill-in-the-blank questions throughout the workbook. So we trust that you will be going through the material on your own prayerfully first so that you can pray for the life response aim to those who will be attending and viewing the video. We also encourage people to read through the workbook as students prior to the lesson. So if each student has a copy of the For Me to Live as Christ workbook and they're encouraged to read through and look up the scriptures before the lesson, then the video teaching, the discussion, the application will have leveraged value because they won't just be getting the material for the first time, they'll be hearing it reinforced, clarified, and enriched so the Holy Spirit can grant more illumination. So our our recommendation is for each student to have a workbook to go through the lesson ahead of time and then the lesson being a time of further study, uh, discussion, and application. Also notice that there are a couple of appendix at the back. The first one, Appendix A, is really a glossary of terms. I really encourage you to take a close look at that and, and keep it handy for discussion because there are some terms that we at Grace Fellowship have defined in a particular way that we find is really important and helpful in the discipleship counseling process, but also may imply that uh, they're not conventional understandings. For example, many people assume that soul and spirit are synonymous, or they may assume that the old man and the flesh are synonymous. Well, by understanding these terms, it's like having a, a jigsaw puzzle. We want all the pieces to be right side up, and then they fit together with a cohesive biblical uh, teaching pattern. So keep in mind uh, those definitions of terms. And one other thing I'd like to bring to your attention, Appendix D uh, talks about another common misconception when people hear the message of identification with Christ and that the old man was crucified with him. They then wonder, well, then why do I still have a struggle with sin? Why, uh, why is there this ongoing uh, issue with temptation. So we want to make clear that although we are free from the authority of sin, that in our new spirit we're a new creation, and all these wonderful truths that we hope to unpack in the course, we see that the flesh remains. And uh, this uh, issue of knowing our practical freedom in Christ requires us to yield and surrender and trust Christ to live through us day by day. Someone may ask the question, are you talking about a second blessing? Are you talking about some mystical experience that happens after salvation. And again, clarifying terms really helps answer that question because we're not talking about a, a subsequent blessing. We're talking about uh, one of the facets of salvation that God wants us to appropriate personally. For example, 
when you have the Lord's table and observe communion, uh, that fellowship with the Lord is not something that you get after salvation. It's celebrating what He did for you and what you are commemorating and appreciating through that worship experience. Likewise, when Romans 6 says we need to reckon true our identification with Christ, that's talking to believers. Well, reckoning that true helps us to appropriate what really was given to us the moment we were saved. So we're not talking about a second blessing. We're talking about unpacking the blessing He gave to you when you were born again. Uh, Some teachers of sanctification that teach a similar message make it sound like when you enter into victory that the uh, old nature is eradicated. Well, we still have the flesh in us. We still have the world around us. We still have uh, demonic forces that are trying to take us down. That's why the Bible says, put on the whole armor of God. But you may notice in this uh, Appendix D that we actually discourage the term sinful nature as a description of the battle in the life of the Christian. Why? Because that's based on traditional usage and it's based upon dynamic equivalent Bible translations, such as the New International Version and others, that may use the term for the Christian life that we're dealing with the sinful nature, but that's not the accurate Greek term that's translated flesh. So when the Bible talks about our struggle with sin, the literal New Testament Greek doesn't talk about a sinful nature in us. It talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil. And collectively, Romans 7 calls that the principle of sin. So if I do what the real me doesn't want to do, Paul says, it's not coming from my new spirit, but from sin that dwells in me. That's not an excuse. But it is a very helpful clarification that we are a new creation in Christ, that we have practical freedom from the authority of sin, but we need to trust Christ to live through us to enjoy that victory day by day. So as you go through the workbook, as you take advantage, I hope, of the leader's guide, as you, you pay special attention to the appendices at the end, we trust that, that uh, your testimony, your prayer, your leadership will make facilitating the For Me to Live as Christ course a real blessing to those that you're ministering to. If we can be of assistance to you as you prepare, feel free to check our website, other resources, or contact us. And we pray that this will be a wonderful experience for you and those that you're discipling. Thanks very much. study on For Me to Live is Christ. This study is an eight-lesson inductive study of a book called Handbook to Happiness, and it's based on a wonderful passage of scripture from Philippians chapter 1, where Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Does that sound pretty radical to you? Well, it certainly is. But when our Lord Jesus Christ commissioned us to make disciples, he said, All authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So when he called us to discipleship, he didn't just call us to going to church on Sunday or uh, adopting a religion. He called us to a personal relationship. And that relationship is one of allowing Christ not only to be our Savior and Lord, but our very life. If I were to ask you what about your relationship of Jesus Christ is meaningful and precious, If you know him as your Savior, I'm sure you say, Jesus Christ is my Savior. He died for me and rose again. That is very important. That's essential. That's the the part that brings us into eternal life. We could also, I hope, 
ask you, is he your Lord? And you would say, yes, I confessed him as my Lord when I trusted him to forgive me and give me eternal life. But the, the role of our Lord Jesus that is not as familiar with people in the discipleship process is that he is also our very life. In Colossians chapter 3, it says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, we shall appear with him in glory. So this idea of for me to live is Christ sounds radical, and it is, but it really goes back to God's original design for you and me and how life was intended to be lived. Let me remind you of the passage in Philippians chapter 1. You recall that Paul was in a Roman prison. Um, his circumstances would be very desperate. I think if it were you or, or me in a, in a prison cell, we'd be pretty distraught and discouraged. And yet, because of his focus on Christ as his life, the Apostle Paul made this statement about his value system and his relationship to God. He said, According to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Well, to say for me to live is Christ is a radical statement. It's also one that goes back to our original design for how God intended us to live, not as a central person or just as a psychological person, but as a spiritual person. But how could Paul say that to die is gain? That, that sounds pretty radical too, and it is. But our Lord Jesus said that he is the resurrection and the life. And because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, Scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So Paul described this, this kind of commitment to Christ in what you might describe as a victorious Christian life. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Well, you might say, well, that sounds like a, a radical view of Christian discipleship, and it is. There does seem to be a dignity and a meaning to it, and certainly there is. But we see also that this goes back to God's original design. What do we mean by original design? When we think of a house design, you might think of an architect or a builder, and a house being built according to its original design. Recently, I was on a mission trip to India, and just before returning to the airport, uh, we had lunch with a couple that were both architects. And their house was a very beautiful architecture, also a very nice location right near a body of water. And she described to me her ideas in terms of designing the house. And I was intrigued by a plaque on the wall of their house from the book of Psalms, which said, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Not only did their house have uh, the the design and the structure of a well-built home, but also their family did because of their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about the Christ-centered life, friends, we need to think about the question, how did God design our life to be lived? We're going to see in Scripture that God didn't only just make us physical beings, but He also gave us a soul and a spirit. So if you're following in your study guide, we're going to look at some diagrams in Lesson Chapter 1 of For Me to Live as Christ. And we begin by looking at a scripture from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that distinguish, distinguishes God's design for us that we are not just physical creatures, not just psychological beings, but also spiritual beings. So in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, we read this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, 
who also will do it. We're going to see in this study and our subsequent lessons that God has designed us to be spiritual beings. In other words, He has designed our spirit to govern our soul and our soul to govern our body. Now, to understand that design, let's take a closer look at these three different aspects of how God made us. We see that the most obvious part of us is our physical part. Through the body, you relate to your environment. And uh, that's the part we study in anatomy that we take care of. And, of course, the physical part of us in our culture is very important. TV shows about how to look glamorous or lose weight or get in shape uh, dominate our culture because it's a value that many people have to be fit and to be healthy. Nothing wrong with that. But if our life is based only on physical concerns, our our, uh, life is going to be... um, a demise at best because our body is aging, we're prone to disease and other health crises that if we're based on our body as our physical primary identity, we're going to be discouraged. I remember when I was a pastor in Montreal, Canada, one of the men who came to know Jesus Christ, his name was Tori, he's from Scandinavia, and after he came to know Christ, his life had such meaning and hope and he became a very dear friend of ours. But after some time, Tori developed a terminal illness. And when I visited him in the hospital, I noticed that his body was very emaciated. And yet, in spite of the fact that his outer frame was dying, his inner man was was growing more dynamic and hopeful day by day. Well, I was intrigued when he showed me a picture during that time that in his younger years, he was an award-winning bodybuilder. So before he knew Christ, his identity was based on his physical aspect, and he got acclaim and and uh, popularity through that. But he realized that if his life was based only on physical concerns, it was like building a house on a sandy foundation that would not stand up to the storms of life. Well, Paul describes here that God needs to sanctify his spirit, soul, and body. If our body relates to our environment, then what does your soul signify? Well, your soul is that aspect of you that relates to others. The faculties of your soul include mind, will, and emotions. The mind would be your capacity for thought, for cognition. The will is your ability to make decisions, your chooser, you might say. And of course, emotions, your feeler, your capacity for for a wide range of emotions, from happiness to sadness, joy, peace, and so forth. So through the soul, you relate to your environment. The word suke in Greek is soul, and that's the word we get psychology from. So often when people are concerned about helping people solve problems, they talk about studying psychology because they're intrigued by how the mind, will, and emotions affects a person and affects their relationships. And certainly that is an intriguing topic. And we believe that observable information from psychology can help us understand ourselves and others. But we believe that the best way to help others grow in Christ, the best way to solve chronic personal and relational conflicts is to understand that we need a spiritual solution for psychological and relational conflicts. And that leads us to the issue of the human spirit. The human spirit is the part of you that can relate to God. Now, there are three different words for life in Scripture. There's the the word for physical life, and even plants have that kind of bios life. Um, Higher animals, you can see that they have a soul, they have mind, will, and emotions. Perhaps you have a dog or a cat and you notice they have certain personality features about how they think and choose and feel. Um, But the human spirit, the Greek word zoe, implies the idea of our human spirit, 
the term in Greek is, is our pneuma, the part of us that can relate to God. That part of us is unique to us as human beings. And in Genesis 1, God created Adam and Eve in His image. And the Bible says God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So you and I as human beings not only have a physical part, not only a psychological part, but we also have a spiritual aspect that can relate to God. Now this wouldn't be obvious just from our study of psychology or uh, from our personal experience, but it's the Word of God that gives us this additional clarity about God's design and our makeup. So in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we are told that the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it can pierce even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So in other words, we have not only the physical part of us, the psychological part of us, but also we have a spirit, a spirit of us that can relate to God. Now what are the faculties of the human spirit? Well, our human spirit has three primary faculties. The first is intuition, the second is conscience, and the third is communion. Now what do we mean by intuition? Intuition is your capacity to discern spiritual truth. As human beings, don't we ask ultimate questions such as, what is the purpose of life? How did I get here? Is there life after death? We look up into a starry sky and wonder about the ultimate meaning of life. Psalm 8, David had those same questions. When I look at the starry sky and think about who you are, God, what, who am I that you are mindful of me? that you visit me. So we have this capacity for understanding spiritual truth, and we call that intuition. We believe that the Bible is God's revelation is the particular way that God reveals things to us that we could not understand any other way. We couldn't just observe them through science. We couldn't just figure them out psychologically. They need to be revealed to us by the Word of God. So our human spirit is like a faculty that can pick up this spiritual truth. Just like your ear is designed to pick up sound waves, your eye to, to uh, interpret light and your vision, so your human spirit is that aspect of you that God designed to perceive spiritual truth. Okay? Another uh, faculty of your human spirit is conscience. Now the conscience is that inner witness to right or wrong. Now that can be desensitized or it can be educated, but you know what it's like when you do something good and you feel good inside, when you, when you do something wrong and you have that inner witness, uh-oh, there's, there's guilt there. It's not just a psychological phenomenon, that's a spiritual discernment of, uh, of sinning against God's moral law. So we have that capacity for conscience. C.S. Lewis, in his book Mere Christianity, points out that that capacity for discerning right and wrong conscience is one of the key evidences for God's existence and our unique design as those made in God's image. So we've talked about intuition and conscience, but also there's the faculty of communion. In other words, that God has designed you and me as those made in His image to have a personal relationship with Him. We're not meant to be an island. We're meant to know our Creator and also have fellowship with other believers, other human beings. In other words, we're spiritual, but we're also social people. And God has designed us to have personal communion with Him. Now, Scripture reveals God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And just as God is three in one, God has given us this body, soul, spirit blending that gives us this unique capacity to be spiritual, psychological, and physical in a way that overlaps in a very profound way. How does the body affect the soul? How does the soul affect the spirit? Well, I was hearing a psychiatrist teach recently, and he mentioned that his hospital, they did a study and they calculated about 25% of the people that are getting um, appointments at their hospital were there for physical symptoms that were primarily due to conflicts in their mind, will, and emotions. In other words, when we're stressed out in our mind, when our emotions are all tied up in knots, that will typically affect our physical aspect as well. Maybe it relates to tension headaches, or you may have trouble with indigestion or a racing heartbeat or trouble sleeping. So your soul does affect your body, and it goes the other way too. You know what it's like to miss a night of sleep? Uh, you kind of drag through the next day, you kind of feel blah, it affects how you think and how you feel, and often your choices are affected. So the soul affects the body, the body affects the soul, but also there's a soul-spirit interplay as well. When I sin in my conscience, that can cause me sorrow in my emotions. Or if I discern spiritual truth from the Word of God, then that will give my, my capacity for thinking a positive and wise outlook on life. So there's that interconnection between spirit, soul, and body. In the diagram in your notebook, you see that there's also a inner circle in this wheel diagram. And in that circle is a question mark. And that question mark represents the question, what is your functional source of life? In other words, just like a wheel uh, is resting on an axle, so your, your life rests upon and depends upon a power source. Now, if we really stop and ask God for wisdom on this, we might discover that our life is orbiting around maybe our job or our family. Or maybe our life is based on the quest uh, for money. If we're in Christian ministry, however, maybe our life is not so much centered upon Christ, but centered upon the work that we're trying to do for God. So the question mark represents the question, what am I depending on or who am I depending on to meet my ultimate needs? What are your ultimate needs? Have you ever thought about that? Wouldn't you agree that all of us have a need for love? All of us have a need for acceptance. And that lack of love and acceptance causes what we describe as rejection. And rejection can cause a lot of emotional, psychological, and relational conflicts that we'll talk more about in this series. But also we see that we have a need for belonging. As we said earlier, we have this capacity for relationships, and that's very important. We also have a need for security. So when we are injured or when we are uh, abused or something like that, that impacts our need for security. And so feelings of insecurity and inferiority typically result. We also have a need for significance, don't we? A need for worth, a need to feel like our life really counts for something. So that if we are criticized, if we're not appreciated, if we have a lot more put-downs than encouragements, then we can feel that, that our need for validation has not been met. And so therefore, depression, discouragement, a feeling of inadequacy uh, can be very common. As you look at your workbook, you'll see a diagram that describes a number of psychological problems. And those psychological 
problems um, often psychiatrists and psychologists focus on to try to help people function better. But we believe those psychological problems are really symptoms of a deeper issue. Hence, I'd like to direct your attention next in our study to lost man's spiritual problem. It's true that if we have a physical illness, that is a, a, a real problem. If we have psychological turmoil, then yes, that is going to affect our relationships and our attitudes. But we believe that the, the most radical solution to our personal and relational conflicts is found in discovering God's design and His provision for victorious Christian living. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and also have it more abundantly. Now, why do we need life? We need to go back then and look at some scriptures that describe how we're born into this world with a spiritual vacuum, a real need that only God can fill and God can meet. What is our problem? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's not just that we haven't developed our full potential or we don't measure up to our own standards, it's that we don't measure up to God's standards. And that's why the Bible says we are lost in a need of a Savior. In Romans 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to the whole human race, because all sinned. So our fundamental problem, friends, when we enter this world, is that there's a spiritual disconnection from God that the Bible describes as being spiritually dead and lost. Genesis chapter 3 describes how that happened through Adam and Eve's sin, and we inherit the spiritual a condition of being separated from the life of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, we read, For as in Adam all die, and yet in Christ all shall be made alive. Here we have a parallel between our natural lineage in Adam, which really is devastating. We have a fallen world. We have a spiritual uh, separation from God. But that is contrasted to what it means to be in Christ. Christ came to give us life and to undo the tragic damage that Adam and Eve caused at the dawn of human history. In Christ, all who trust Him can be made alive. Ephesians 2 verse 1 puts it this way, You were spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. You say, well, that's not very flattering. <laughs> that doesn't uh, help my self-esteem. Well, in order for us to have a real solution, we need to have an accurate diagnosis, friends. And the diagnosis of our condition before coming to a personal relationship with God is that we were spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1 Well, if that's the bad news, uh, I think we could do some good news about now. And the good news is that God did not want us to continue in separation from Him in this life and also to be separated from Him in hell. So He took the initiative in the wonderful plan of redemption, which we'll talk more in our next lesson about His plan of salvation. But through the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son, Christ has made a way, and He is the way, for us to have new life by receiving Him as our personal Lord and Savior. I was raised in a Christian home in the state of New Jersey. My mother came to know Christ as Savior when I was on the way, actually. Um, she was reading the book of Revelation, and, and just the, the anticipation of the things that are going to come upon this planet I drove her to her knees, and my dad's mom, my paternal grandmother, led her to a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I was about seven years of, old, uh, of age, I realized I needed to have that personal relationship with Christ in my own life. 
And so I received him as my personal savior. Now that message is simple enough for a child to receive, but it's profound enough so that you can study the theology of redemption your whole life and realize you're just scratching the surface. What does it really mean when you're in Christ? What does it mean to truly be born again? Let's take a look at that in our notes and see that when God gives us salvation, he actually gives us a new spirit. In other words, we didn't just get something like forgiveness, although that's a wonderful blessing, but we receive something we didn't receive before, which is a new spiritual relationship with God. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, describes the new life that God gives to us. And predicting in the Old Testament this new covenant, God said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll keep my judgments to do them. This new human spirit, united to God's spirit, is as different from our condition before knowing God as a heart that is organic and beating is different from a heart of stone. And so God says, when you come to know me, when I put my spirit within you and you become my child, you're going to have a spiritual reconnection with me. The new birth is what Jesus calls it, where we have a new spiritual heart. Romans 8, 9 says that when we know Jesus, the spirit of God actually dwells in us. That gives us a whole new dignity, doesn't it? that this body we live in becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit and our spiritual relationship with God which had been severed from the dawn of human history has now been reunited and we become a new creation at the spirit level. 1 Corinthians 6.17 describes it this way, the one who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. In other words, the eternal life of God comes into the believer's spirit and makes you a new creation at the spirit level. Our Lord Jesus defined that and illustrated it the night before he went to the cross when he he was probably walking by a vineyard and he said, I am the true vine and you are the branches. So just as a branch is grafted into the vine, so the true believer is grafted in to the life of Christ. And that organic union is the basis of our new spiritual life. What an amazing blessing we have as believers to have a new spiritual life through God's amazing grace. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a, a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. What has passed away? Our condemnation, Adam, has passed away. Our spiritual separation from God has passed away. And now, through our spiritual union with Christ, all things have become new. We have a new identity and a new potential. Now in your workbook, you'll see this diagram where there's a C in the spirit area which describes the basis of a personal relationship with God. Christ comes into your life. You have salvation. You have assurance. You have the potential of security. You have acceptance. And then the invitation for a total commitment. But notice that Christ can be in your spirit. You can be born of God. You can be on your way to heaven. But S, representing self, can still be in the center So when we talk in this lesson about God's design for the Christian life, we are saying that God has not designed us to be self-centered people. He has designed us to be Christ-centered people. In other words, He's designed your spirit to govern your soul and your soul to govern your body. 
When I was uh, about 10 years of age, we had, um, I had a hobby of model airplanes, and I remember saving up and finally getting a model airplane. And it had a gas engine on it, and, and around the age of 10 or so, I was really intrigued by that hobby. And these little gas engines, you would put a battery on it and get it started, and then you could either fly it uh, around you. It's called U-Control, or there were other types of flying the model airplanes. I remember my debut with my first model airplane, and I was going to try U-Control, which meant that the, uh, the modeler would stand at one place and hold the line on a handle, and two strings would go to the airplane's wing. And when you pull up, the plane goes up. When you pull down, the plane goes down. Well, my friend started the engine, and I was all excited. I held the U-Control. He said, okay, you ready, John? Yeah, I'm ready. He let it go, and I jerked it up and went... Mmm, crashed. 20-second flight. <clears throat> I didn't go very far in my career in hobby modeling. But as I thought back about that, I realized that our life is not meant to be U-controlled. It's not meant to be controlled by my wisdom, my will, my agenda. If it, if it is, it's going to crash sooner or later. But rather, our life is designed to be Christ-controlled, Christ-centered. So you'll notice here on our study that if we continue as a Christian in a self-centered fashion, then these psychological problems of inferiority, insecurity, inadequacy, guilt, worries, doubts, fears, conflicts with others are going to be uh, typical, and they're not to be resolved just by trying to be better adjusted or to try to perform better. Really, they really are symptoms of a spiritual problem. And that spiritual problem itself is our functional source of life. So as you think about it during this lesson, what does that question mark in the center represent? What does that S in the center of the circle represent? Ask God to give you discernment on that, friends. For example, what identity are you living out of? That's an aspect of the S in the center. We tend to live out of a sense of who we perceive ourselves to be. I think that self can represent self-effort. Are you the kind of person who is really driven to achieve? Maybe you've tried to solve your problems and achieve your goals in your own strength, and you find yourself disillusioned and frustrated. In this diagram, you'll see that when rejection occurs, when the problems of life pile up, when our circumstances are beyond our control, then there's going to be frustration. And self doesn't handle frustration very well. So that rebounds into hostility, and that hostility causes relational conflicts and worse. So as we start to conclude this lesson, we need to ask the question, what is God's plan? What is his design to resolve those conflicts? And the last diagram you see describing the Christ-centered life is a wonderful picture of what God's intention is for you as a believer. In other words, God's design is for you not only to know Christ as your Savior and your Lord, but your very life. So in this Christ-centered diagram, you see, it represents a person who not only has received Christ as Savior, not only has surrendered to Him as Lord, but also has come to understand what Paul meant in Galatians 2.20 when he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer the old me that lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in this flesh, this body, I live by faith, I live by dependence upon the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Look at these blessings in the soul area when Christ becomes the actual source of our life. Instead of being stressed out in terms of mental confusion, we can have the mind of Christ. Instead of 
having the awareness of our own inability and weakness, we can have his strength made perfect in our weakness. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We have the potential of tapping into his resources. My God shall supply how many of your needs? All of your ultimate needs through his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. His peace that passes all understanding. His joy which the world cannot give. Friends, let me ask you, which of these diagrams describes your life right now? Is it the diagram with self in the center with the psychological and relational conflicts going on? Or would you like it to be represented by the Christ-centered diagram, trusting Christ in you, the hope of glory, to meet your needs from within? That's God's design for you. He has come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. One of the privileges I've had is to go to Brazil with Edmund Speaker of Churches and Mission to present a three-day pastoral retreat to pastors and their wives. And as we've done this over the years, we've used one particular passage of Scripture as a theme which I think is a fitting conclusion to this first study. It's in Matthew chapter 11:28 when Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, this Christ-centered diagram represents someone who's not only found rest in terms of forgiveness and the promise of heaven, but this person has come to rest in Christ as his life. He or she has taken that yoke of identification and has discovered that God intends us to have a grace life, not a life of self-effort. And we find rest for our soul, our mind, will, and emotion as Christ lives his life in us and through us. As you review this lesson and study it, God bless you as you seek to discern God's design for your life and apply this truth in your personal discipleship. All right, that's an introductory lesson tonight. <clears throat> Basically, what he did there for you is he took you to the gospel, didn't he? Uh, he gave you the gospel very clearly. Why? Why, why do you go through the gospel? I mean, you're all saved, hopefully. Why, why was he going through the gospel? Because the basis of any help we're going to get is going to be through our spirit. Well, what this method is called, it's called spiritual therapy. It's kind of a, um, a strange word, but what it means is this. It's, it, it's a therapy where it's letting the Holy Spirit do the work in your life that needs to be done. And, and think about it. I'm not going to ask you how many of you have visited a counselor or a psychiatrist and been helped a little, not been helped a lot. Definitely not had your problem fixed. Why? Because God made you. He made you body, he made you soul, and he made you spirit. And he wants to work through your spirit, his spirit, to, to your spirit, to fix the problems and the holes in your life. In fact, there is no other way to totally fix them. The best that secular psychology and psychiatry can do for you is mask your problems and help you to get on with life while you still got the problem. But what God wants to do is God wants to get in. He wants to fix the problem. God, God wants to go inside and deal uh, in the problem. Now, Obviously, that can't happen if your spirit's dead. You need a, <clears throat> your spirit brought to life for God to be able to actually do the work in you that he wants to do. 
I said, that's what he's talking about. So if you're not saved, the first step would be for you to get saved. The second thing you need to understand is this, though, that it's spiritual. That's where you need the help. And, you know, it doesn't look very easy just sliding the C into the place of the S and putting the S out, doesn't it? Doesn't that look very easy, doesn't it? You just put C, uh, put Christ in the center and not self. But you know what? It's not as easy as, uh, as it looks sometimes. We end up with self very much in control. And we end up sometimes deceiving ourselves and not really realizing self's in control. And that's what this whole course is going to be about, basically. It's going to be encouraging you, helping you, showing you that it needs to be Christ that goes in the center and not self. All right? Any questions? That basic introduction tonight. Do read through the, the, the material, though. Uh, if you want the notes, ask Tina. She'll send them to you. Uh, but read through the, the, the material uh, and check it out and kind of get it uh, in your heart and your mind. Uh, let me ask you a question. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on this. As far as the diagram goes, who's in the center in your life? Is it self or is it Christ? Now, you may not like to say it, but you probably actually know who's in the center. And you might say, well, there are times when Christ is, but a lot of the time I am. You know, <clears throat> And when that's true in your life, what's going to happen is you're going to have stress, you're going to have grief, you're going to have problems. That's going to, that's going to magnify all the problems in your life. But when Christ is in the center of it, and all of us know those moments when Christ is in the center. Aren't they sweet moments? And those are the moments where there's peace in your life when Christ is in the center. Right? That's what we're looking at. We're looking at trying to deal with that situation so that Christ is in the center, not you. All right? Any questions? We're going to pray and then we're going to take a prayer request. Father, we thank you for this evening. Thank you, Lord, for <clears throat> this lesson. Now, Lord, would you help us, Lord? Would you just uh, put your hand upon us, Lord? May the truth not be lost on us, Lord. Would you give us wisdom and discernment to know where we stand as far as the chart is concerned? And Lord, if there be one here that's not saved tonight, Lord, oh, Lord, may tonight uh, be the night when they put their trust in you. Uh, may tonight be the night when they come to rest in you. And Lord, if there be some, Lord, that uh, need to just put their trust in you for, Lord, putting you in the center of their lives, Lord, may that be tonight, too. And Lord, would you bless us? Would you help us as we look to this course to grow in you and to rest in you and to know the blessing of your hand and your peace in our lives? In Jesus' precious name, amen.